This is a unique podcast exploring the criminal justice system and those involved and affected. We'll educate and expose the public as well as potential jurors to what takes place behind the scenes of those who are facing the system. Your host owns a litigation support firm called Justice Technology Professionals, and he works on criminal and civil cases offering support to defendants and counsel. What you're about to hear is an open dialogue opening the minds to the public to what takes place in reality as opposed to what you think takes place ladies and gentlemen welcome to the justice tech pros podcast here's your host dominic crea hello listeners hope everybody's doing well today's episode's a bit of an impromptu I had some time available in my office and I wanted to put this out based on seeing this morning a few YouTube channels shared the audiobook that was done on my father's case, Guilt for the Guiltless, authored by Lisa Babick. Uh, there was a channel, Crime Organizations and Bold Crimes. She put it on her channel and I, and I appreciate that. Mob Rats Exposed shared it on his channel. And he's always been a great supporter of what I put out. I'm a supporter of what he puts out. So I really appreciate that. Uh, people have been tweeting about it. Uh, and, and again, I really appreciate that. All I can say is thank you that people are taking an interest and people are trying to bring attention. So thank you for the tweets. Thank you for the remarks. Mob Talk Radio actually did an episode, his last episode. He, he talked about the case a little bit. He talked about myself. I appreciated his words. He had uh, very nice things to say. One thing stuck out that I wanted to address, and it had nothing to do with him, but he, he apparently received emails from people to go into him asking about me and why. I almost got it like it was like, why is he defending me or something? First off, as he said, he don't need to defend me. I don't need anybody to defend me. Second off, the only thing I'm going to say on that, whoever sent the emails... It really doesn't make sense to send random emails to podcasters who aren't really tied into what I'm putting out. If you have something on your mind, good or bad, or comments or remarks, I have it on my channel. You could just email me directly, email my office. Uh, share whatever thoughts you want. I'll be glad to respond. We could agree to disagree. I'll be glad to have a debate. I have no problem with adversity. I recognize there's going to be adversity. So I that I just found that odd that people are emailing podcasters about my content and is, so my message is to whoever sending those emails just email the source right it makes sense to email the source you got something on your mind you can reach out to me directly and we could address it that way I have no problem with that but uh, I don't see the sense in just emailing random podcasters about what I'm doing and what I'm putting out it's odd to me. So I, I just wanted to make that clear, and I appreciate uh, Mob Talk Radio having nice things to say and kind remarks, and uh, I, you know, all I could say is I appreciate that. I thank him for that. And on a, um, I wanted to kind of follow up with that train of thought, where it seems as though, you know, he made a, a statement, and and I, I understand what he was saying, where he was telling the public you should have compassion for his son fighting for his father, and I understand that, but I'm a little different in this sense. 
I'm not on here like on a soapbox. I've been doing this almost two years now. My episodes don't surround trying to prove anybody's innocent or anybody. I don't use this platform for that because to me, it actually diminishes the value of it. If I was to come on here and day in, day out, I'm just talking about how wrong the case was, which it was, don't get me wrong, how um, my father is innocent, which he is, I recognize the fact that the public would say, oh, of course he's going to say those things. He's a son. That's how he feels. And it will minimize the word I am trying to spread. It will minimize the content of my channel because those will just chalk it up to, hey, you can't really believe anything he's saying. Uh, he's going to fight for his family. That's really not what I'm doing on here. I've maybe done two or three episodes out of almost 70 talking about the case and talking about different things on the case. I could come on here and I could analyze the case and I could show you things and I could explain certain things. But I just don't think that has the same impact as, let's say, the audiobook or the ebook, where you could read it from a third party, uninterested party, a journalist who had no dog in the fight, took an interest in the case and decided to do a deep dive and did a phenomenal job at that, citing sources, citing trial records, all factual information. I would rather that speak on my behalf in relation to that case because it lays it all out and people can't chalk it up to, oh, well, it's just a son defending their father. I'm not on here, I always say, to convince everybody. I've been saying it for the last two years on my first episode. That's not what my channel's about. I appreciate the support. It's tremendous. It was unpredictable. I didn't think I'd be getting the support that I have been getting. It's refreshing. And it's welcomed, don't get me wrong. But I believe anybody listening to all my episodes would understand that's not why I'm on here. I'm not on here to convince the public of anything. I'm on here to lay things out as I see them to lay things out with citations I feel are valuable and credible, to, lay thing, to, to point out inconsistencies that I see, to point out the cracks in our justice system that prevent certain individuals from getting a fair trial. And that's what I try to do. And I try to appeal to those that are open-minded, those that recognize when you go into a courtroom and you serve as a juror, you have to leave any pre- determined, biased, or conclusions about a defendant at the door. And you have to let the facts of the case dictate the result of the verdict. And that's what I try to do in a bunch of different ways. I'll pull different inspiration from news sources, from stories going on, from YouTube. And I try to take those examples and explore them and elaborate on them, give a little insight and have people look at things perhaps a little differently. Whether they agree or not is irrelevant. It just gives an alternative perspective and an alternative way of digesting information and then making a conclusion based on that. I, I don't feel the way I operate. It's not to come out here and convince anybody if my father's a good person, not a good person. The facts are I couldn't care what the public perceives. I know what my family is. I know what, how I was raised. I know how I was taught 
to educate myself, be a better person, have respect for your elders, have respect for women, protect your family, protect your friends. So I feel my values are intact. Stand by what you believe in. Don't change your beliefs based on money or based on relationships. If you believe in something, have the nerve to stand by it, regardless of adversity. I feel I have a good belief system, moral system, and that's all that matters. I I don't try to convince people one way or the other about any intimate details of my family, who they are as people. That's not even on my radar. Uh, my core foundation, my family, my close friends, those are the opinions we care about. Those are the ones that matter. And we know what type of individual everybody is. We know who stands by their beliefs. We know who stands up. We know how we treat people. I know for myself, the way I was taught, and I try to teach my children how to be respectful, how to analyze situations, how to help people when you can. If you're in a position to help somebody, you try to help your fellow fellow man or woman. I don't want to get into the whole uh, Confucius-style way of living. I'm just giving a little <laughs> brief overview that it's not about that. It's not about me coming here and using this platform platform to convince anybody of anything. What I do want to do is I like to explore things. And I, and I, I have realized which everyone understands that not all people are open-minded. Not all people are willing to listen to all of the facts, all of the information before making a final determination. Unfortunately, they may have their own preconceived notions of how somebody is or their level of guilt, and they just go by that. They don't want to hear anything else. And there's nothing you could do with those that type of individual. They're set in their ways and that's that. You have to move on to the ones who are open. So that's just my brief philosophy on those type of things that I wanted to make clear and I guess get off my chest. What is important that I wanted to, I wanted to give a little bit of an update on where things stand with the case. As of Monday, the defense team filed what's called the Rule 33 and I spoke about that on, I believe, two episodes ago. The Rule 33 is uh, a law, a memorandum of law, and it's based on newly discovered evidence. And you have three years after the end of trial to submit that. So we put that in on Monday. It's a massive filing. It's 121 pages, and it has over 500 and something pages of transcripts attached to it as exhibits. So it's going to take some time. The way the process works is we put that in. The judge then reviews it. The, pro- the prosecution actually then reviews it. They have to respond. Then the defense team responds. Then the uh, judge may call a hearing. And we go from there to decide if we get a new case at this level. If not, what happens, the, the positive side is even if you lose that, you're then able to use that information as part of your appeal. So it just enhances your appeal and makes it stronger because now you could use information that was not previously available. You could use that as part of your appeal. And we had a strong, very strong appeal prior to the Rule 33, so now it only enhances that. So we'll see how it plays out. That's where it stands now. It's basically in the court's hands, and we'll see what kind of schedule is set and how things develop. 
God willing, we'll get some relief on this level for all of the defendants involved. There's four four uh, lives at stake. There's Stephen L. Crea, Matthew Madonna, Christopher Londonio, Terrence Caldwell. So everybody's tied to this Rule 33, and we'll see how, how it develops. That's where it stands right now. It's a massive filing. It's on the public docket. It's a lot of reading, but it's a lot of it. A lot of it uh, has to do with declarations that were made by informants on podcasts, Brady material that was turned over a year after the case was over, which, what does that tell you? You're getting Brady information a year after the case is over. You're supposed to get that before the, the trial, but <laughs> we discussed all that in the filing. So it's very powerful. The issues are very severe. The issues all correspond with the ability to defend and have a fair trial and they blocked that in many ways by what has taken place and the new revelations that came out that none of the defense team was aware of prior whereas if we were we could have investigated it we could have cross-examined on it we could have developed it understood it perhaps called witnesses pertaining to it I don't have to tell anybody else. It's just common sense. If you get facts after a case is over that contribute to somebody's character, truth-telling ability, or stories, or alleged crimes that they were involved in that you weren't aware of prior to trial, I don't have to tell anybody how powerful that could be and how that definitely tips the scales on putting on a proper defense. You're handcuffed without certain information. And to get it after the fact pretty much only shows that things were did not play out they were supposed to play out. People were less than honest, or things weren't explored properly, or we weren't given what we were supposed to be given, and now it's time to revisit that and revisit the impact it would have had on trial and what, it ha what impact it would have had on the juror's decision. The one important message I want listeners to understand is... I think people f may feel, I didn't think this was the impression I was given, but maybe people feel when I'm on here and I'm trying to, I'm trying to defend my father's case and point out all the inconsistencies and I'm on my soapbox screaming innocent, innocent. I've never done anything like that. What I have done is explain that he was convicted not based on the evidence of the trial. He was convicted based on alleged reputation, uh, alleged position, supposed titles, and that's not what you're supposed to be convicted of. The way the law works, you're supposed to be convicted based on the evidence of the charges at hand. So in the grand scheme of things, what I want listeners to understand, regardless of the case, if you're selected for jury duty, whatever it is, make sure you're not drawing a verdict or concluding whether somebody's guilty or not based on reputation, based on stories, based on hearsay, go by the evidence connecting that defendant to the charges. So if they're charged with robbing a bank, let's say, make sure the evidence shows that they robbed the bank. What happens, and what happened in that case, they'll try to taint the jury by simply talking about past offenses, past reputation. I mean, they were bringing out things that supposedly took place in the 70s and 80s and 90s for this trial. 
and I spoke about this, what amazed me is they could go that far back on defendants. With Matthew Madonna, they were going back to things in the 60s, I believe. I mean, stuff that had nothing to do with the current trial. Items that he was already convicted for, served time for. They do that to paint a picture in the juror's mind where they could say, well, they may not be guilty of this, but they're guilty of something. And that's not the way the law is supposed to work. And what's troubling with that tactic, the defense team isn't allowed to do that. In other words, we're not allowed to then bring up the informant's past. If you have informants who may have beat their girlfriend, you have informants, informants who are junkies, who may have done degenerate things to their mother, to their families, to their girlfriends, um, informants who are mentally unstable. On this last case, which is in the trial records, there was a guy, David Evangelista, who ate razor blades. That's in the trial minutes. He ate razor blades. But you're limited on what you could expand on and what you could talk about because the judge will always use this philosophy that it doesn't aid in the ability to whether or not the informant is telling the truth. I wholeheartedly disagree with that because somebody's character and their tendency to perhaps deceive somebody is all tied to their actions. That's why there's that old saying, right? Actions speak louder than words. When you see what somebody's made of, what they do, you would believe that that would factor in. And if nothing else, they're doing it on the defendants. They're, they're trying to paint the defendants in a certain light by bringing up their past crimes or things they may have served time for, which they already paid their debt to society. I don't know how you could bring that up again. That's supposed to be behind them, but they do. They bring it up again, and yet... The defense is very limited on what they could explore when it comes to informants. You have to put in motions about, can we ask about this person beating their girlfriend? Can we ask about this individual doing drugs in front of their children, having their children taken away, beating women? Uh, can we ask about this guy having a mental disorder, not taking his medication? And the judge will knock a lot of that out and say, no, you can't ask about that. You can't explore that. But yet you start trial, and they're bringing out things from the 70s and 80s on defendants. How does that make any sense? How is that fair? I don't think it is, and nobody could explain to me that it is, because it's just not, and it's just a way of tilting the scale and just a way of impacting the jury to have them paint somebody guilty based on reputation and not based on facts. And I would be speaking a totally different story if... Somebody I was close to, my father went to trial and all this evidence was against him and he went to trial and he got convicted based on the evidence. It would be unfortunate. Obviously, it's my father. It would be terrible. The family would be heartbroken, just as heartbroken. But it is what it is. Those are the facts of the case. Those are the evidence. Those were the alleged crimes and there was evidence to support that. That's not what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with the case where there was no evidence. And I'm confident in saying that because I went through all the discovery. Thousands and thousands of items. Tens of thousands of audio recordings. Thousands of documents. Thousands of surveillance photos, which is another thing. A lot of these informants claim they were so close to people, yet there was thousands of surveillance photos, and they weren't in one of them with these people they claim to be close with. I'll give you an example. 
Uh, I'm not exaggerating. There was thousands of surveillance photos. You have to realize this was an investigation for 20 years. So there were surveillance photos at weddings, funerals, wakes, Christmas parties, outside of social clubs. Now, in all those photos, none of these informants, except one, and I'll explain the one, was ever captured in an image standing next to my father or in the same vicinity of my father. Not Frank Pasqua, no no photographs of him going into this club, which they were, it was a big topic of the, of the uh, trial. They kept talking about this club and how everybody would go there. Not one photograph of Frank Pasqua entering or leaving the club. On that note, not one photograph of John Panisi entering or leaving that club. The only photograph that exists was with one informant, uh, John Panisi. He was at a wake, I believe, and there was maybe four or five people outside of the wake, and he was in the picture, and my father was in the picture. They weren't interacting with each other. They were on opposite sides in the picture, but that's the only picture with the two of them together. Nothing else out of a 20-year investigation, not one other photograph. And this was at a wake, and there were several people outside. And that's the only only photograph of them together. Frank Pasqua, nothing. He supposedly knew my brother. In 20 years, not one phone call. Not one phone call from him on his phone to my brother's phone or any of his phones. Not one. A lot of these informants, when they got on the stand, they said they didn't know my father. Never met him. David Evangelista was an informant on the trial. Said it right out. Never knew him, never met him. All hearsay. Anything he knew about him, he read or heard. Frank Pasqua, he didn't, he didn't wind up being a, uh, a trial informant. But you have to remember one important thing. Although he didn't wind up being a trial informant, Frank Pasqua was part of the grand jury. So they believed all his lies to get the indictment in the first place. So on that alone, the whole indictment should have fell apart, but it didn't play out that way. And I, went in, I, I told the story about the grand jury minutes. And actually, if you listen to the book, it does a phenomenal job talking about our motion for the grand jury minutes because we proved a lot of lies so we knew somebody was lying on the grand jury. So grand, uh, Frank Pasqua III was the main informant for the grand jury to get the indictment. So when you look at it that way, and they didn't even wind up using him on trial, it was, they kind of played the shell game with informants, who they were going to use in trial. And then they brought up this David Evangelista, who never met my father or anything. He tried tying my father into the Michael Meldish murder, which is a story in and of itself that, again, is explored in the book that shows not only did he not know him, he was lying about what supposedly... He tried saying Christopher Londonio told him that my father was involved in the murder, which was completely disproven in many ways. It never happened. The bottom line is David Evangelista was the one eating razor blades. He didn't want to do any more time, so he came up with this elaborate story. He even came up with an elaborate story that Chris was trying to escape jail with him. Uh, needless to say, they were acquitted of those charges because the jury didn't believe that. Um, so th there's a lot there, and again, the Rule 33 really expands it, but if you want a good picture of what took place, how things played out, you read the book, you listen to the book, and you'll get a better understanding of everything I'm talking about. And there's a lot of things I want to explore that I'll be able to put up. 
I spoke about the certain things that aren't on the protective order that the defense team acquired through a FOIA, uh, a FOIA file, filing, Freedom of Information Act, where we obtained the actual footage of Pasqua being arrested in Mississippi when he was caught with drugs and a gun. And I know he went on his Vlad fame tour, and he told Vlad he didn't become an informant at that time. He didn't become an informant until later on. Completely not true, and I'll be posting that video. You see the dash cam of him talking to the police officers, and right away, I think within 10 minutes of them searching his car, he tries telling them how he could give them information on organized crime figures in New York, and then obviously it went from there. He went to the interrogation room. We have footage of that. And he's, during the interrogation, the same nonsense stories. And that's when the feds came and swooped him in and brought him up to uh, uh, MDC and then Putnam or wherever it was. I think he went to Putnam first, then MDC. I'm not sure off the top of my head. But either way, that's when he decided to become an informant because he didn't want to have to do the time for the drugs he got caught with and the guns he got caught with. So he had to come up with some elaborate story, which was plagued with lies. Again, all explored in the book. So my point is, I'm not on here making this a soapbox for me to cry foul, cry innocent. All I do try to do is have the audience read the facts and then make a determination. Understand what you're reading, see how things played out, and then determine. Then either way, however you fall, you fall. But at least I can't say, well, you don't know the facts. And that's the problem. A lot of these people in forums and groups reading newspapers, they just don't know the facts. They're getting one side. It's like I, I talk about getting one side of the picture does not give you the full equation. You need to hear from different sides. And you need to see facts. You need to see what was said in court. You need to read motions. You need to to understand the evidence or lack thereof. All of those things need to be factored in. And that's why it was hard to, to grasp how the jury was able to convict, but I do understand they did so based on reputation and based on where they felt, well, if they're not guilty of this, they're guilty of something. And that you can't convict based on that. They were wrong. They made a big error. And... The facts of the case prove what I'm saying. I'm not just making a judgment call. If you read it, you see the facts of the case, you see how it played out. Any open-minded, reasonable thinking person would, would not be able to convict beyond a reasonable doubt. That case was plagued with reasonable doubt. Plagued with it, at the very least. It was plagued without, without lies and misinformation, but let's just say it was plagued with reasonable doubt. And that's, that's the threshold. You have any doubt, you can't convict somebody. Remember, it's not saying guilty or innocent. It's saying guilty or not guilty. So not guilty is a lower threshold than saying innocent. You, when you convict somebody of being guilty, it has to be beyond a reasonable doubt. And if it's not, then they're not guilty. And the, the jury didn't do that. Unfortunately, they bought into all of the smoke and mirrors that were put up, and that's what they ran with. That's what they ran with. So, that, that, that's really one of the main things I wanted to address as it relates to the case. Again, what prompted this was people sharing the story, which is great, especially in light of the developments. Uh, we get a new trial. It's good for people, for the public to understand, be aware of what to take note of, what to be aware of on the new trial.
if that's granted, if and when it's granted. So it only helps to get the story out there, to understand what took place, to understand the credibility of those involved, to understand the credibility of the informants. And it's important to get the whole picture when you start analyzing a case or a situation. And one important notation I think people need to be aware of, when the government does build some of these cases, they know the government's very intelligent. They're all intelligent people from the prosecution down. They're smart people. They didn't get where they are by not being intelligent. So they know when they have a weak case and they know when they have a strong case. And one tactic they use when they have a weak case is they'll try to throw as much mud against the wall in hopes that something sticks to sway the jury. And they'll do that a lot when they have these cases that don't have evidence, they'll hold on to headlines, they'll put a lot of media out there, they'll try to taint as much as they can prior to stepping into the courtroom to build the case up. When you have the evidence, if you have somebody dead to rights, you don't really need to do that. But they want to do that to start the ball rolling to already push towards a certain verdict without even going into the courtroom. So when you see these sensational headlines, and then when you're going throughout the trial, and you're seeing things that have nothing to do with the charged crimes. And they're talking about what supposedly took place in the 70s and 80s and 90s and reputation and who somebody is. To me, that tells me they have a very weak case as it relates to the actual crimes that they're alleging. Because if you have somebody on those crimes, you're going to go nuts on those crimes. You're going to pull out phone records, pull out wiretaps, show DNA, show... You don't need to show anything else because you have them tied to the crime. So when it's so complicated and they try to piece together puzzle and they try to say, well, if this person held this supposed position, then they have to know, they have to be in the know. And a lot of that is all false and not accurate. And we explore that in the Rule 33, how that's not the case. Uh, people aren't in the know. It's not the way they try to make it out to be. It's the same with, they'll say things, for example, they try to say my father had this nickname Stevie Wonder. Now, in trial it was shown, nobody called him Stevie Wonder ever. In 20 years of phone taps, whenever they referred to him, nobody used that term. Uh, even the informant, one of the informants said it themselves. No, never heard anybody use that term. It was never, was never used. You know who labeled him that? The government. And what happened was, that's how we knew David Evangelista was lying. In his supposed declaration where he said, Christopher Londonio, who just met him, mind you, I think they knew each other maybe 40 days, and Londonio supposedly confessed all these things to him, and Londonio supposedly told him, oh, Stevie Wonder ordered the hit. Now, nobody calls him that. Why would an alleged member of this organization call him that when nobody called him that? And it's known nobody called him that. And even the expert that the government call, called to testify on their behalf said he never heard anybody refer to him as that, never caught it on any wiretaps. It wasn't even used. So why would Londonio use that term? I'll tell you why. In his jail cell, Evangelista had a gangland article. In the Gangland article, they had the term Stevie Wonder. That's where he used it from. Wonder Boy, whatever nonsense nickname that they invented, which is ridiculous anyway. But yeah, it was, it was in the article that was found in his room. So he got that, and that's what he used. It doesn't take a genius to put that together. And that's what he used. 
my point just is they use all of these different methods, all of these different tactics to try to make the case appear stronger. And all I ask those listening and potential jurors, don't fall for that. Remember you're there to weigh the evidence, the actual evidence of the case and the charges. That's what you're there to weigh. And you have to compare that to the charges for each defendant and the evidence that's being presented that may or may not connect that defendant to those charges. That's what's most important. And that's why in my last episode, I, I spoke about how how necessary it is for the defense to dive into the discovery early on because there's a lot to do and there's a lot of pieces to put together and there's a lot of holes that you have to find and explore and expose for the jury to see when you when you do uncover what helps your defendant. So I do believe I come on here and I try to be general and I try to give the audience things to think about and I don't grandstand and I don't I don't come on here and preach innocence and preach I just talk about the facts. I try to enlighten those. I want those to explore and investigate. And if you're interested in the story and you're interested of the actual facts of the case, don't read it in those stupid forums. Don't read it in blogs. Don't read it in articles. Go to the book. The book will then, and remember now, the book's free. So this isn't something where I'm making money or anything. This was all free. This this is all given to the public for free. It's just to have people aware of what takes place. So there's no financial benefit to any of this. It's strictly to, to bring awareness to the public because on the grand scheme of things, the way I look at it, and the way people should look at it, if they could do this to somebody they target, that means they could do it to anybody they target. It's all a matter of who they target. And there's different levels of targets. In smaller towns, cities, states, they may have somebody that's a target for them. may have somebody that's a big name in their, in their, um, in their region. And that's who they want to focus on. You know, it's different everywhere you go. Organized, organized crime uh, always gets big headlines, so it gets promotions. People get moved up in the system when they make big cases, so that tends to be the target in the big cities, you know, New York, Philadelphia, areas like that. So you just got to bear in mind that when you're weighing a case, you're looking at the facts, you have to try to put your personal feelings or your personal beliefs on somebody or maybe on somebody's conduct or how they operate. You have to put that aside as hard as it may be, but that's what you have to do as a qualified juror. What What is disturbing is you see what a lot of society, how a lot of society does not do that. When you read a lot of these forum comments, a lot of these Reddit comments, people pretty much just say, well, they're no saint, they're guilty, they should go to jail. It's not a matter of being a saint. I never came on here and said anyone's a saint. I'll never say I'm a saint. I have flaws. Everybody has flaws. That's not what it's about. I never say that. And people try to use that to twist my words and act like, oh, he's acting like, again, with that stupid saying, glorifying the mob. Never did that once. I'd, I'd be a moron if I even attempted to do that because I don't even believe in that. It's just completely against how I operate. They use that term, again, to try to win the argument. Because if somebody says, oh, they're glorifying an, uh, an organization uh, that may do illegal things, 
then anything they say can't be of value. So they try to use that when that's not what I do at all. It has nothing to do with that. I always try to harp on the point that, at the very least, make sure the evidence supports the charged crimes. To go back to my prior point, if you say somebody robbed the bank, make sure the evidence supports that. Don't bring in how the person may have did time for uh, grand theft auto years ago. or You can't find them guilty based on what they may have done in the past and served their time for. Find them guilty on the charged crimes and what ties them to those charged crimes. And that's really the basis of this episode. There's a few things I'm going to be putting together on different informants that have impacted the case that the uh, defense was able to acquire during our own private investigation. It has nothing to do with the protective order. It's items that we, we were able to compile and I'll probably be doing some type of collaboration where I could put them all together. I don't know. I, I got to think about how I'm going to lay that out. But that that'll definitely be a a project I want to do for nothing more, just to show that on that alone I could disprove a lot of statements some of these informants are making on podcasts. I could just disprove it based on what we have. If I was able to go into discovery, I could really blow it out of the water. But I told you, unfortunately, that's under protective order. Maybe one day that'll be lifted. But I could really just knock them out of water with that. But on our own private investigation tactics and what we have acquired, we have a lot there as well that I should be able to share. I'm going to make sure of a few things prior. I just wanted to put this episode out almost as an update of what's going on, where the trial stands, and the importance of those sharing the story just to learn about it. Some may not give a crap and they don't want to read it or listen. Uh, I get it. Uh, you know, that's how it goes. But for those who are interested, I recommend you have to read it. Listen to the audiobook if you like that better. But it will definitely open your eyes to how things played out, truthfully. And it's all documented with court records, which you could then click on and go right to PACER and actually pull the entire document. For obvious reasons, uh, when Lisa was writing it, uh, I understand she couldn't insert the entire, every entire filing. It would have been massive. But she did show the excerpts from specific filings, so people could then go and pull it from the docket. You got the case number, and you could pull every filing that was ever submitted. So when you go and you compare the motions, and in a lot of our pretrial motions, we really explored how a lot of the declarations being made at bail hearings did not line up to what the discovery showed. I mean, when you just think about Frank Pasqua's account, he was, remember, he was the main informant used for the grand jury. They didn't use him on trial, but the damage was already done. He got the indictment. And a lot of what he said was disproven. A lot of what he said was disproven. And they, his credibility was so bad they didn't even wind up calling him to trial. So now think about that. They had this witness as their main informant for the grand jury to get the indictment, but yet they don't call him to trial? Wouldn't that, and it just goes to show how messed up the system is, one would think once this discredited like that, where the government actually loses, I guess they realize this guy's just lying. However, the, the damage was already done. The indictment's... The indictments come down, people are in jail for years. 
one would figure when that happens, everything falls. Once the once the main informant used to obtain the indictment was proven to be nothing more than a liar and a storyteller, one would figure that the whole indictment would collapse. And that's actually a huge issue for our appeal, which if it, once that's submitted, I think that's going to be a monster, a monster decision in our favor because we explore that and we show the train of events, we show about the grand jury. But if you, if you listen to the book, you'll hear a lot more about the grand jury and that's important because that'll give you an idea of how it developed and how lies were told on the grand jury level to secure the indictment. Then after the indictment secured, they don't have to use those same informants. So the informants could be blatant liars, they disregard them and they get somebody else. That shell game that I was talking about that they use, and it's scary when you think about it. You use one informant to get the indictment to convince the grand jurors to indict somebody. Then you don't use him for the trial because you realize he's nothing more than a liar and a storyteller. What does that tell you? Yeah, well, I could go on and on about that and about my feelings on that piece of garbage. Uh, but I'll leave that right there. I think the main point everybody needs to get out of this podcast anyway is at the most simplistic elementary level, everybody's entitled to a fair trial. Regardless of reputation, regardless of accusations of positions and labels and titles, you're entitled to a fair trial. And when that doesn't happen, the general public should be concerned because it can happen to anybody. I know a lot of people think it, it can't, but it can. If you, for some reason, become a target for any reason, you could find yourself in that position. And I would assume we would all just want a fair trial. We would want things to play out the way they're supposed to play out according to the Constitution, according to the Book of Law. We would want things to play out according to those rules and regulations that were initially the foundation for those to have a fair trial. And when that doesn't play out, it's a problem, and people should take issue with that. I'm going to drop the links to the channels that are sharing sharing this. I suggest you subscribe uh, and also give it a listen. It's on so many different platforms. It's an audio book everywhere. The ebook is everywhere. It's on Google Books, Amazon, Barnes & Nobles. If you go to guiltforthegiltless.com, it's all there. There's many different sources to get it, listen to it. I, I think you'll be surprised at what took place and regardless of the headlines and what people talk about in forums, the evidence simply did not support the verdict. The evidence was not there. And four defendants are entitled to a new trial. That's the bottom line. In the eyes of the law, they're, entri- they're entitled to a new trial. Regardless of what you think about who they are as people, about their character, if they didn't get a fair trial and they were stripped of that, they're entitled to a fair trial. And that's the objective now to try to right a wrong, to try to make sure that the justice system works. That's the objective now, to do whatever we can to enforce the fact that these gentlemen need a fair trial and should be judged by a jury of their peers who have open minds, who are able to digest the information, weigh the facts, weigh the evidence, and then render a verdict. My firm... Uh, fields many requests for opinions and possible participation in different cases. And the one thing we do when we start diving in or we take on a case, we dive into the discovery. We want to make sure 
we understand and we have a great, a good grasp on evidence that could potentially hurt us, evidence that helps us, and whatever we could use to build the best defense possible. And I kid you not, when I tell you in this case, years preparing, I couldn't find one thing that tied the evidence to the charges. What I did see is a lot of old stuff, a lot of past crimes that defendants already served time for, trying to be used to taint the verdict. But as far as tying people to the actual crime, beyond a reasonable doubt, it just did not exist. And I'll, I'll leave it there. Uh, I would only suggest those that are interested and those who are curious about it do take the time to investigate it a little. Do take the time to read it or listen to it and then go from there before you uh, conclude at least get a full picture. Don't just go by hearing pieces of information here and there. Don't just listen to an informant side of things because, again, that's only one perspective. Get the whole picture and then render your decision. Well, I think that's it for today. Uh, I hope everybody appreciates the content, what I had to say. I am uh, thankful for all those who are supporting the channel, all those listening, all the subscribers, all the commenters all those who interact, e each response and interaction is valued. And, uh, and again, thank you to everybody who shared, shared the audio book, who tweeted about it, who talked about it. Uh, again, very much appreciated. So until next time, take care. You've been listening to the Justice Tech Pros podcast with Dominic Crea, one of the most unique podcasts on the internet, discussing the obstacles the defense team faces when trying a case, what goes on behind the scenes during pretrial and motion phase, holding defense attorneys accountable, making sure they're fighting for their clients, the difference between textbook law and how things truly play out in a courtroom, and everything in between. And everything in between. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show and we'll be back soon until then find us on twitter facebook and instagram at justice tech pros to email the show with questions and comments it's podcast at justicetechpros.com till next time this is justice tech pros podcast and dominic crea signing off